Hi, I'm Matt Henry, and I'm the pastor at Missio Day Fellowship in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Very thankful that you found our sermons, and I hope that they are a way of encouragement to you in your Christian walk. However, it's important for you to understand that this sermon was given in my church's context and for the people that God has entrusted for me to shepherd. So if you're in the Kenosha area, I would encourage you to come on a Sunday and worship with the body of Christ here. And if you're not in this area, these sermons are a great tool for supplementing your walk, but they are by no means a substitute for the local church. So you need to submit yourself to a faithful Bible teaching church and shepherd in your area. Thank you. I preached last week's sermon up at Milwaukee today, so I'm still trying to, as I said in my prayer and whatnot, I'm trying to, in a sense, flush that from my mind. But last week we did see the effects of the heights and the depths of God's grace, didn't we? We saw the heights and depths of God's grace in the life of this early church. The grace of God we saw was evident in our lives and their lives, whether we walk in the awareness of it or not. God is constantly, in other words, pouring out in a superabundant manner his grace upon us. So Romans 5 says exactly that, that the grace of God is described as being not only abundant, but super abundant, overflowing in abundance. In chapter 12, in another unique passage, Paul describes God giving us a grace. He gave to each of us a grace. And what he means by that is what we would call a spiritual gift. When was the last time that you considered that God has gifted you in such a way for the work of the service among the saints, among the believers, and that that was an act of grace on his part, that he gave you that so that you might labor to serve others in the church? This grace begins in God's gracious choice toward us, does it not? This grace begins in the saving work in which God came to seek those who were lost and dead in their sins. From before we ever knew God, God knew us. And that God displayed and granted us this incredible grace freely without any outside influence. As I emphasized last week, this grace by its very definition cannot be earned. There's nothing you or I can ever do to earn the grace of God because the moment we seek to earn it, it ceases to be grace. It becomes now works. And so the Bible says that you and I are saved by grace and we live in that grace. Therefore, what I argued for last week was that when that is rightly apprehended, that's the key. It's not that the grace disappears It's that we don't apprehend it like we ought to as Christians. We don't see God's grace in our lives as we ought. But once we begin to apprehend it rightly, it motivates us to be generous people. And that's what we saw in chapter 4 of Acts. Uh, People who give and share freely and without any regret. In other words... I can make the argument, and I believe I'm very correct on it, that our approach to money and possessions is simply a clear indicator on how well we understand God's grace. How you 
and I view our money and our possessions is a clear indicator on how we understand God's grace. Jesus said it another way, right? He said, you cannot serve God and wealth. And I believe that in many American Christians' minds, we spend a lot of time trying to figure out how we can prove him wrong. You cannot serve God and wealth. You will love one and hate the other. Now, in Acts 4, we saw that very thing. Not one person was needy in the church, even though there were many people in need. Everyone who had assets, everyone who had land or property, as the needs arose, they would sell. And they would bring the money, and they would lay it at the feet of the apostles during a worship service, a time of teaching. And then the apostles would see to it that it was distributed to all who had the need. And, and, and in seeing that and in thinking about it, that seems simply wonderful. In fact, everything that was going on in this early church seems wonderful. What started out to be about 120 people has now exploded into at least 15, if not more, 15,000 brand new Christians. God's grace Everything's going good. God is blessing his work. God is blessing the apostles. God is blessing the preaching of the gospel. They're already thinking, we need to start a building campaign. But things are going to change, right? If you know your Bible, you know they're going to change rather rapidly. And the reason for this is because sin is still in the hearts of the people. And when I say that, I mean the sin is in the heart of the people who are outside the church, and sin is still in the heart of the people who are in the church. So let me say it this way. Sin abounds still in Kenosha, but it also abounds here at Missio Dei. We are sinners. Sin is still found in each of their hearts. Sin is still dominating this entire creation. So from within our own hearts, sin seeks to express itself in actions, and outside of us, sin is constantly pressing down. It's described as a dominating power. Even though a Christian has been saved from the wrath of God due to our sin, even though our sin is forgiven, we still have sin. And so we see, and we'll see it in chapter 6 of Acts, favoritism and partiality, two exceedingly strong and, and grievous sins in the mind of God, not so much in us, but in the mind of God, it, they are very serious sins. And today what we'll see is greed and deception still runs very deep in the hearts of the people. In other words, they're just like you and I. And so we come to a passage now that is a bit strange and even shocking to those who have never looked at it before, because it shows the seriousness of God and what he he thinks about the holiness of his people. In fact, the idea of holiness among the people of God is not something strange in the Bible. Just in the New Testament alone, we see the writer of Hebrews in chapter 12, verse 10, say that God disciplines all of his children for our good. Why? So that we may share in his holiness. First Peter, so Peter the apostle writes this, 
But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves, also in all your behavior. Why? Because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Chapter 1, 15 and 16. In 1 Thessalonians 4, 7, Paul the Apostle writes that God has not called us for the purpose of impurity. God did not call you out of your sin so that you can be impure. He says, but for your sanctification, which is just another word for your holiness, that we would be holy. The Apostle John writes in 1 John chapter 3, verse 3, that everyone who has this hope, this hope of Christ, fixed on him, fixed on Christ, purifies himself. Why? Just as he is pure. The mark of a Christian is that if your hope is resting in Jesus, then you pursue a life of purity. Why? Because he is pure. The Apostle Jude, in his benediction, writes, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in his presence of his glory, blameless and with great joy. Every one of the apostles all shared the same message coming from Christ, and that is that we are to share and walk in holiness. In other words, we can say with absolute certainty that holiness is not an option. Paul writes to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians 7.1, he says, let us cleanse ourselves That's a command. Let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness, where? In the fear of God. That, beloved, is the essence of my sermon. Perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Having said all that, holiness is not actually the primary point of this passage we have before us. Rather, holiness in the church is to prepare the church for something else, something more important. It is to have a healthy, proper fear of God above all other things. God expects holiness from his people, and one of the ways that he prepares us for that holiness and to walk in holiness is fearing him. When you fear God above all other things, then you are now on mission, if you will, to your calling as a Christian. So often I hear people say this, well, I'll do anything to fix my marriage. I've been pastoring long enough that I've dealt with enough broken lives and broken homes to have heard this said in various ways over and over. I will do anything to keep my children I will do anything to keep my wife or my husband. I will do anything to keep my job. I will do anything to stay out of jail. I will do, I will do, I will do anything. And that statement all by itself reveals what's wrong. Because it reveals that you really will do anything. And being the type of pastor I am, I will almost always look at the person and say, really? anything. And they're, sometimes they're just blubbering and weeping and shaking. I've had people fall on the ground, prostrating themselves, whatever, whatever it takes. 
I said, so you're going to sin? If, if sinning is what it will take for you to keep your wife, is that what you'll do? If sinning will keep you your job or get that promotion, you'll do that? Well, no. Then what do you mean? What do you mean when you say, I will do anything to keep this? Today, what we're going to see is this very idea of fearing God above all other things. And it's going to be seen through the vehicle of this story. It's a true story, but the point is not just about Ananias and Sapphira. What we're going to learn about is the fear of God. When I hear a person tell me that they'll do anything to fill in the blank, I will invariably ultimately ask them, to think about it a different way. And that is, it is better for you to say, here is my situation. What I want to do is from this point forward, honor the Lord in it. You may not keep your wife. You may not keep your husband. You may not keep your children. You may not keep your job. You may not keep anything. That doesn't matter. What matters is that you honor the Lord. And if you don't care about that, then everything else doesn't matter, right? Everything else is ultimately worthless. That's what's happening here. We need a fear of the Lord. In the story, what we see are several people who are involved. Faithful people, unfaithful people. People in leadership, people in service. But in all of it, we have it moving toward how God brings the fear of himself into the hearts of the people. So let's read verses 1 through 11 of chapter 5, and you'll see it right at the end. But a certain man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and kept back some of the price for himself with his wife's full knowledge. And bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. And as he heard these words, Ananias fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard it. You should underline that phrase. Great fear came upon all who heard it. And the young man arose, covering him up, and after carrying him out, they buried him. Now there elapsed an interval of about three hours, and his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter responded to her, tell me whether you sold the land for such and such a price. And she said, yes, that was the price. And then Peter said to her, why is it that you have agreed together to put the spirit of the Lord to the test? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they shall carry you out as well. And she fell immediately at his feet and breathed her last and the young men came in and found her dead, and they, they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. 
and again, underline this, a great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. May the Lord bless his word. As I was studying this, one passage came immediately to my mind, and that is that judgment does not begin with the unbelieving world, but with Christ's church, with the household of God. But even in the killing of this man and this woman, we'll see grace, if you learn to see it rightly, because God is actually preparing the church to suffer, and he does it by getting their priorities right. But never forget this, beloved, judgment begins with you. Whatever you view this world to be, and however you view this world to be, that's not where God's judgment will begin. It begins with us, his church. And the passage that came to my mind, and we'll look at it again further into this message, so just hear it, is 1 Peter 4, verse 17, where Peter writes, and that, now picture, this is Peter writing this, and it was at Peter's feet that the woman and the man died. Peter says, for it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And then he warns, he says, and if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? He says, judgment begins with the people of God and then flows outward. And if you think it's bad seeing what happens to the Christian Understand that's nothing compared to what will happen to the one who rejects Jesus. Everyone loves to talk about the good times, right? We all love that. We all love the times of growth, of abundance. People are being saved. Everything is good. We like it. We see a pay raise come our way. We, we see a promotion or that pregnancy that we've been hoping for. Maybe it's as something as simple as an incredibly relaxing vacation We see a healing from a sickness, an escaping of a bad accident, a move to a better neighborhood, or maybe it's just an incredibly good price on a new house, and we say, God has blessed us. But do we say the same when we are persecuted? Do we say the same when we are afflicted and suffer? Especially real persecution, not that fake stuff that we talk about. It's interesting because if you were living in a primarily Hindu or Muslim country and you hear somebody preaching Jesus Christ as Lord, that he is God in human flesh, and you are being called to come, follow him, trust in him alone for your salvation, for your forgiveness of sin, that through his death, your sin is resolved, he died in your place, and in his resurrection, you have life. He conquers the enemy that you can't defeat, which is death, right? That you are called that, but you live within a heavy Muslim or or Hindu culture. Do you know what you already know is going to happen if you follow Christ? You already know what's going to happen. You will suffer persecution. It's built into the equation. There's not a question of maybe. You understand great risk comes in following Christ, but not here, right? People here don't suffer in the same way. 
For us, peace and safety and comfort really is still the norm where generations actually have come and gone and there's no real individual or group memory of persecution for the faith. In my reading over the last couple of weeks, I came across some illustrations of this reflecting on Normandy, D-Day, storming of the Omaha Beach, Massive number of young 18 to 20-year-olds were crowded into these landing crafts and they're chugging toward the shore and they're hearing the bullets bounce off the hull of the ramp that's guarding them and as they approached the shore, the ramp was laid down and immediately they were cut to shreds. They didn't even get one step out of the landing craft They just died. The other young men behind them desperately began to fling themselves over the sides of the landing craft simply to try to avoid being killed immediately. And then they fought their way onshore, and the rest, of course, is history. Today, just last week, Eastern Illinois University gave their students two days off for a mental health break, a stress relief, because, you know, it's stressful being a college student. Opportunities abounded with therapy dogs, meditation spaces, lavender for aiding in good sleep, affirmation cards, and even tricycle races. All to help them deal with the great stresses of the day. One generation comes out of the turmoil of the Great Depression and the other generation has been raised in comfort in such a peaceful environment that they now have to invent stress and call them microaggressions. What has to change in any of our minds when we are a victimized culture? Well, there's a lot of things you can say, but I'll tell you biblically what must change. We need to see the judgment of God in his church. What will shift the thinking of a very sick church that is called the American church is when God finally unleashes his judgment on the household of God. And when that happens we will fear the Lord. And when we fear the Lord, everything else will find its place where it belongs. This is what we'll see in the church. How does God prepare this young, vibrant church here in Acts chapter 5 to suffer? How will they suffer well? How will they persevere? How will you persevere? He'll do it by doing things that will cause you to fear him more than man. I pray you listen. That God will do things in your life and in the life of the church here and in the larger church of America in such a way that finally we will begin to fear him more than everything else. So that's where we're going with this wonderful Blessed sermon. 
Judgment begins with the church. First of all, we need to look at our passage and just see this. God knows. God knows. We see two different men with two different agendas in our story. We, we dealt with the first man last week, Barnabas, right? Where Barnabas was a, a Levite. He owned land. He sold it. He brought the money, laid it at the feet of the apostles, and, and that's the last we hear of him until later on in the book of Acts where we will see this man, Barnabas, going out with Paul, doing incredible works, bringing the gospel to people who have never heard of Jesus Christ. He is a man God richly blesses and uses. But all we have right now is he owned land, and there is a need, so he sold it and gave the money away. Now we have another man named Ananias. And he has his wife, Sapphira, and they have a very different agenda. But for both situations, understand God knows what's going on. God knows what Barnabas was thinking, and God knows what Ananias and Sapphira is thinking. God is not like, well, I don't know what's going to happen. Let's see what happens. He knows the intentions of the heart. He knows your intentions. Nothing is hidden from his sight. In fact, this doctrine is called the omniscience of God. The omniscience is simply the fact that God knows all things. Not just maybe or guesses good, but he literally knows all things at all time. Not as they're happening, he just simply knows them. And the, the omniscience of God is a very glorious truth because that means for you and I as Christians, when, when we doubt, when we're just struggling, when we're discouraged, when we are afraid, that God knows. God knows our wanderings. God knows our wondering. He knows. I've told this to people many a time where they'll come in for counsel and begin to share about what's happened, and maybe they suffered some incredible loss in their life, and I'll say, so how are you doing? And, and they're kind of, well, I'm, I'm fine. I'm like, really? Are you, are you really fine? Because I don't think you are. You're not acting like you're fine. And it's strange. They'll lower their voice. They'll say, well, actually, Pastor, I'm kind of mad. I'm like, at... God, and they'll say that softer. <laughs> I'm like, you don't really think you fooled them, did you? I mean, lowering your voice, really? I, I tell them, okay, your homework this week is as you find yourself burdened with that anger and that confusion, just tell God. And they're like, well, I, I don't think that's right. I'm like, why? He already knows it's in your heart. So tell him. Lay it before him, and you'll find that the Spirit of God will work in such a way that even as you're talking to him about your anger and your hurt, and maybe you're blubbering as you're doing it, that also God will conform your thinking to a better way. But he knows. Beloved, we are never alone with our own thoughts. God is always present with us. Our fears are known to him. So for David, this becomes actually a point of solace. The King David, the writer of most of the Psalms, 
Even though he can't put into words his own desires and fears, he knows that God still knows what they are. And so he says in Psalm 38, verse 9, Lord, all my desire is for you and my sighing is not hidden from you. Kim, my wife, is a careful student of me in some of the most sometimes annoying ways. She knows me as I know her, and she knows my mind and how I think, and we'll be driving down a road, and we're just out to look at the pretty nature, which my wife loves to do. And we're just driving along, and she'll see out of the corner of her eye, my head just sort of shake. She'll say, what's wrong? And I usually tell her, you don't need to know. But she knows what I'm thinking. She knows maybe it's because we passed the house of a person who abandoned the faith. Maybe it's just whatever is going on, but it's on my heart, and my head, my head shakes but the, the solace that Kim and I both find in all of this is God knows. We're not alone. He understands. Sometimes, have you ever been to a point where you're like, you're not able to put it into words where you're at? I mean, you, you, you try and you're like, ah, and you just don't have the words. The glory of God's omniscience is God already knows. God knows what you can't even phrase in any normal way. But also the omniscience of God, therefore, becomes very disconcerting and frightening if you think about it. Because it also means that though we like to think we can hide ourselves from the eyes of our Creator, nothing, in fact, is hidden from Him. So Psalm 69, verse 5, David writes, O God, it is you who knows my folly, and my wrongs are not hidden from you. In Psalm 44, verse 21, he writes, For he, God, knows the secrets of the hearts. In fact, an entire psalm, Psalm 139, is devoted to this quality of God, his omniscience. So David there writes of God, Before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Yahweh, you know it. The point is that we cannot fool God. We cannot hide from God. He knows us from before we existed, and he knows our rising and our sleeping, and he even knows our end. God knows, and that's what we have here. God knows what Ananias is doing. God knows what Joseph, or better known as Barnabas, is doing. God knows what you're doing. God knows what you did and will do. And here is a man and a woman who are seeking to hide things. Things that they're hiding are both physical and things that are only in their heart, but they're hiding it. Now, what's interesting in this story is that when they sold their property, they actually had every right not to sell it. It was their property. Again, as I said last week, the Bible does not teach some sort of communism or communal living where you just sell everything and everyone has it. They had every right to devote only a portion of the money to the church. It's not required that when they sell, they have to give it all. But that's not what they did. They declared one thing with their mouth. They said, we will do this, and then did something else. All the money from the sale, they said, was to go to the church. Now, behind this whole mess is something more than 
that is not really obvious in the English. So let me tease this out, and I hope you'll find it interesting. In verse 2, look at verse 2, the kept back. If you have room in your margin, you might circle that and make a little note. The, the word is a very, it's a single word in the Greek, which is what the New Testament's written in. Very unique. It's only used four times in the entire Bible, and two of them are right here in this passage. The third time, it's in Titus chapter 2, verse 10, where it tells the, the slave not to pilfer, not to steal from his owner, his master. That the Christian slave is, should not be known for taking what doesn't belong to him. But the big one is in actually Joshua chapter 7, verse 1. Now, if you know the Bible and how the Bible was made, the Old Testament was written primarily in Hebrew. But just like we have a, a, an English translation that we read that comes from the Hebrew and the Greek, which is in the New Testament, well, what they had was they had translators who translated the Old Testament Hebrew into Greek, which is what everyone read. And there they use the exact same word, and it's about a man named Achan. And now you guys have been reading your Bible, and so you know who Achan is. Most of you do. The Battle of Jericho, God commands them to go and to take it. But he also says, do not take anything from it. Nothing. No booty. Nothing is yours. You will not take a single penny, so to speak. Well, Achan sees some valuables and loot, and he sees them to be good. And I mean, it's how much? I mean, why are we burning all of this? And so he took it and he hid it in his tent. The next battle, they lose. Israel loses, and they, they find out sin is now in their midst. And then at the end of that, they ultimately, through this process that God ordains, they find out that it was Achan. And then Achan and his entire household that lived with him, because they are all now complicit in it, in the hiding of it, that which did not belong to them. It was devoted to God, and they took it. They were all taken outside and stoned to death. That's the imagery that we have going on here. Ananias and Sapphira are like Achan. They coveted what was not theirs. And the reason this is so is that the couple had devoted the money to the church, and then they tried to reduce the amount. But understand this, beloved, it's not the money. It's not like God needs it. It's not the money. It was the fact that they thought they could claim one thing and really pursue another. What it was is they wanted to, to be seen as generous while not being generous. But God knows. But not only does he know, he also judges. So in verses 3 through 10, we see his judgment. We see the spiritual side to this whole mess in verse 3. Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Ananias sins, but he, he correctly points out that it is Satan who is working to tempt him toward this. So does that mean that he's not really responsible? Well, no, he drops dead, right? It's not really Satan here. 
who is the ultimate responsibility. Now, Satan will be judged. That will happen in the final judgment, but it's an Ananias who is judged. And I want you to notice well, in verse 3, we find Satan filling his heart. But then what do we see in verse 4? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. Satan is tempting, but he only can tempt what is already there. Please understand that. Satan can only offer to you, as by way of temptation, what is already dwelling within your heart. This might sound crass, but when I was a, but it, I'll use it as a way of illustration, when I was a jail chaplain in the super maximum security of L.A. County jail system, these were very bad people had, who had done very bad things. And I, I would talk about this because I would teach out of the book of James, and in it it talks about the nature of temptation. And I would say, look, you know, you look at temptation as something outside of you. And you think it's the drug dealer, it's this person, it's that person. Everyone's to blame. And if they just weren't around, you'd be okay. But the problem is it's in your own heart. And I use, at that point, crack cocaine was just coming on the scene. It was really, really devastating. It still is, but it, I mean, it was, it, that's when it first hit. And I, I said to these men, I said, look, if I was sitting in a room and a man came and just laid some crack right next to me on the table and walked out of the room and nobody was there, I wouldn't care. I have absolutely no interest in it. And it's not about me, it's just I have no interest. And so I would ignore it. I said, but I know that some of you, if I was to see you in the same situation, you would become anxious. You would begin to shift and wiggle and, and sweat having that right there. Because in your heart, you've given yourself to it. Does that make sense? All of us have our bent, our, our, our heart's idols, our things that we yearn for. And it can be something really fancy or even something quite beautiful, but it is something that we have created as an idol in our heart, and we will do whatever we got to do to get it, and we will sin if we don't get it, right? Those idols. That's what's happening with Ananias. The problem was not Satan. The problem was his own heart. His own heart was a covetous heart. And so when the temptation came where Satan worked it in his heart, you don't need to give all of that. He bought into it. So what we see here is that it is really about worship. Notice, he says, you're not lying toward the church. It's not you're lying to the apostles. Who is he lying to? He's lying to God, the Holy Spirit. In fact, it's one of the great passages that proves that the Holy Spirit is not just some power, right? But God himself, a person. You don't lie to a power. He has committed this money to the Lord. Essentially, he has said to God, I will sell this land and give this money to the church. And it's most likely that he had made this commitment, uh, maybe he made it publicly, but he made the commitment at some point in the past as he was seeing that this was a need. And he's like, look, I, I've got some land. And when it, when it, when it 
is needed, I will sell and give it to the needs. Just let me know when the funds are low and I'll do that. Now, why he withheld some is not told for us. And I would say it's probably because we don't need to know. But let, let, let's think about it. Maybe it's because he had some unexpected expenses pop up right then. I could see that happening. Some unusual expenses. Or maybe this, maybe the land sold for a lot more than he expected. Here's an illustration I can use. Let's pretend that you own, you bought Google stock, and it's done well for you, and and it's worth about $30,000 now, and you're like, yeah, this is great. And then you hear of the needs, and you're like, you know what? I I want to help the the church at, at, at large, and so when I sell that, I will give all of the proceeds that I get from the sale to this need. Great, except two days before you're planning on selling, Google stock goes through the roof. And now it's worth 130000 Can you imagine what's going on in your mind? Come on, be honest. Do you know what you're thinking? Well, I agreed to give thirty, not $130,000. There's things I could do. In fact, there's things for the kingdom of God I could do with that other hundred. I'll keep the 100000 because when I committed, it was the 30. So we'll give that, but we'll keep back the 100. Do you see how that works? That's, we're, we're, we're all thinking that way, in one way or another. The tension, the fear. I, <sighs> and so we do something other than what we committed to doing. Again, though, we don't know. And the reason really isn't that important. And that's actually important for you to remember because you and I, we tend to want to argue or rationalize our sin. And we all do it. We lift up that one sin over another and we seek to soothe our own conscience in that manner. But in the end, isn't it just sin? The words of Peter were not words of warning though, were they? In verse 5, he's not warning him, Ananias, you need to repent. No, these are the words of a prophet. When he said these things, literally as the words are coming from his mouth, so picture that, it's not like he says this thing and then Ananias dies. It's as he is speaking these things, this guy standing there right in front of him and he just drops a lifeless sack of potatoes. He's just gone. Right in the midst of everyone. And it says a great fear came upon them all. Well, that's the understatement of the year. Can you imagine one of you walking up here after hearing over and over again the warning to take it in a worthy manner and that some sleep, meaning they're dead? And can you imagine what would happen to you if you saw somebody and they picked it up and then just collapsed? That'd be something we'd be talking over supper. What I also find humorous in this is it was the task of the young men of the church to deal with the body. This was early church youth ministry. Mateo, Anthony, get the body, go bury it. Why us? 
You're young. Go do it. My back hurts. What's interesting, though, is they quickly dealt with it. They, the, there's a shamefulness in this man's birth, or not birth, death. And so they deal with him. It's, it, it's only in three hours that they take him and get him in the ground. You have to do a lot of work to get that body in the ground, but they do it. And so they're actually coming back tired and sweaty when Sapphira enters into the church. By the way, never complain about how long a church service is either. The early church, three hours, and they're still there. These are all just asides. These are free. I don't charge extra. I want you to notice, though, with Ananias, no opportunity to repent. None was offered to him. There was no opportunity to confess. He just dies. Now, Sapphira, his wife, comes in verses 8 and 9. Now, here, she has the opportunity, but it's still done in a way that's very strange. I'll read it, and then we'll talk. And Peter responded to her, tell me whether you sold the lamb for such and such a price. And she said, yes, that was the price. Then Peter said to her, why is it that you have agreed together to put the Holy Spirit of the Lord or the Spirit of the Lord to the test? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husbands are at the door and they shall gather or they shall carry you out as well. Now, it's very interesting how this whole thing unfolds. Actually, quite fascinating, at least in my mind. Because in our current time frame, how Peter handles this would be unchristlike. Think about what you hear so often in the many sermons out there floating around on our internet. Gospel-centered, Christ-centered, grace-filled. Where's the grace? Wouldn't it have been kind of nice if Peter said, Sapphira, come here. Your husband's dead. What? Your husband's dead. And the reason is he lied to the spirit about the seal of the lamb. So we're giving you a chance to tell the truth. That would have been kind of nice. That's like the information you want to know, right? No. No. Peter's like, oh, Sapphira, hi, come up here. The whole church is watching this. So, Sapphira, did you sell the land for this much money? Yes. And she's dead. Just get your head around that. And I want you to get your head around the severity of God about sin. Why not tell her what happened? Not only do the apostles stay silent, but no one grabbed her on the way up and said, look, tell the truth. No one. They all are quiet. She stands by the story. Her life is taken. And those poor young men, can you imagine? Mateo and Anthony are walking in, and they're like, are you kidding me? (laughs) And take her out, two guys. And they go back for another three hours of digging and burying. 
the life of the young men. Notice how we see a bit more of what's happening in her and Ananias' heart, though, in verse 9. The issue is putting the Holy Spirit to the test, right? You put the Spirit of the Lord to the test. This has other Old Testament connotations. Just like the sin of Achan is, is in, uh, implied within the word choice there, here, with the exception of one passage in the Old Testament, whenever Israel puts the Lord to the test, now listen to me, it is because they believe or fear that God will not provide. That he will somehow fail them. And that makes a lot of sense in this image, right? Because it gives us a bit of a whisper, maybe, of what was going on with her and Ananias's thinking. The money was there, and then they're looking, and they're like, we said this much, but let's hold it a little back. Why? Well, you don't want to be presumptuous on God, right? I mean, we're all just really spiritual believers here. We don't want to presume on God. We need to keep a stuff aside. Haven't you read the book of Proverbs? On and on and on and on and on. And we work it all out so that somehow we can claim generosity without ever being generous. That's really what happens. Is brutal. Is brutal. This is always the real issue for us that we don't really think that God will provide. We hedge our bets, we protect the assets. In fact, most people, when they hear the story of what's happening in Acts 4 and 5, would say, this is stupid. You guard your principle. Ask anybody in investing. You don't touch your principle. Some of you, you're heading toward the grave and your principle continues to grow. For what purpose? We don't believe that way. We don't function that way. It makes no sense. In fact, Rome, uh, first, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 that we looked at last year, uh, week, the reason they're taking that big offering up is to help the Jerusalem church because the Jerusalem church is now poor. And some people would say the reason Jerusalem church is poor is they did bad money management. They kept selling their assets until they had no more assets, and now they're poor, so now they become a burden on the Gentile churches. That's how an American thinks. An American will say what they should have done is kept their asset, rented it out, and then gave from the profits, right? That's good money management. Yeah, it is. When you're storing your treasure up on the earth, that's awesome, Guaranteed. But it's not God's method. They were so stupid to believe that God would provide their needs. How they did not know, but God would provide their needs. Their job was to be generous. This is why you and I do not pray that God would give us our daily bread because our cupboards are packed with food for months. How many of you simply have to trust 
that God will handle the unknown while you open your hands and your heart to be generous. How many of you are like the Macedonian church from last week in 2 Corinthians 8 who gave to their harm? To their harm. And he praises them for it. Peter now functions again like the prophet of the Old Testament. He gives another word of doom, of judgment on behalf of God. It's not redemptive. The decision from God is already rendered. Peter faithfully declares it. Like her husband, now she lies dead. And there's a bit of an irony. Where does she lie dead at? At the feet of the apostles. Same place that their sin gave birth, she lies. She came in with her husband, and they both they gave the money at the feet of the apostles. Now she lies dead at that same feet because of the sin. The question in this story should never be, why did God act so swiftly and sternly in this situation? The question we all should ask is, why does he not do it more often in our midst? What is really going on here is that this couple wanted a place in both realms. They wanted the joy of life in Christ, the joy of life in Christ in the future kingdom, but they also want the security of earthly possessions. And Jesus said, you cannot serve God and wealth. You cannot serve it. Guys, you cannot serve it, and no matter how much you tell yourself otherwise, you cannot serve it. I cannot serve it. This church cannot serve it. No one can do it. God has hardwired this world in such a way that once you start to store it up here, he will steal it from you because it's not for you. Where you have your heart, that's your treasure. So what do we do with the passage? Let's bring this all kind of to a close. But don't close your Bibles. This is a long conclusion. Why why, why do we have this passage? Well, we find an indication in verse 11. A great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. My point in this whole passage is this. God often prepares the church to suffer by making them fear him more than man. God prepares the church to suffer by making them fear him more than man. The first step in this is making everyone aware of the serious nature of following him. The call to the gospel is not a light one where you're invited to fix your problems and find happiness. In fact, the call of the gospel is to follow Jesus, which means you deny yourself, you take up the shame of the cross, and you follow your Lord. But you will not do that, beloved, if you fear man more than God. Note that it was not only the church that began to fear God in a greater manner, but all who heard of the events. There are always a group of people in the church who sees non-Christians as facing the judgment. That's what we tend to look at. We look out there, whatever there is, the world, and we say, ah, God will judge them. Well, of course he is. 
They may not verbalize it, but it's often on their mind. But that's not actually the proper way to perceive that and approach it. It's actually very short-sighted and can result in a lot of pain and shock of mind in your own life. We forget that the way of the cross is, in fact, suffering. And the reason we forget that is we don't suffer that that much. We begin to think that we will be exempt, and so we relax. That's what I suspect is happening in this early church. Things are going swimmingly. Everything is going well. And so you start to think it's going to stay that way. We're all doing good. Or maybe everyone is doing good, not me, but I'm along with everyone, and so maybe all of us together will get swept along into glory. But suffering is coming for this early church, and some of these people are going to die, and most of them are going to get scattered all over the place, all because they believed that Jesus was the promised one. So go to 1 Peter, and we'll briefly look at this passage. 1 Peter. Chapter 4. 12 through 17. We'll do this very quickly, but much like last week. In verse 12... Paul, or Peter rather, writes, and remember, this is the same guy that had these people die at his feet. He said, beloved, this is so interesting how he words it, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. Can you imagine you going into your pastor and you sit down and you're just, you're white, you can't believe things have just, I mean, everything that has could go wrong has happened, and you're, you're now being brought up on charges, and, and your wife has left you, and, and all these things are happening because you're a Christian, and you're just sick. If you went to Peter, and he was your pastor, he's like, and you're surprised about what? He's like, we've warned you, and beloved, you're warned again. Yet again, you are warned. They're surprised. But why? Why are they shocked? Because they don't expect it will happen to them. It's a concept, but it's not reality. And then in verses 13 through 16, instead he tells them, why don't you stop and examine the nature of your suffering? He says, to the degree that you share in the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, for what purpose? So that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. We also want to think that the suffering for God is such that it will happen for a little bit and then we'll have happiness. He says, no, you keep rejoicing in the level of your suffering until Christ comes. Examine it. Are you, beloved, right now in your life suffering? And if so, is it on behalf of Jesus Christ? If it is, then I would say to you, the command here is rejoice. Keep on rejoicing. In other words, I would say that this passage shows that joy is not connected in any way with our experience. Our joy is to be connected to Jesus. How? If, however, it's due to your own foolishness, he goes on, 
In verse 15, by no means let any of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or evildoer or a troublesome meddler. He says, if, if you are suffering as due to your own sin, then there's nothing to rejoice over. The only thing you can do there is bear up under the suffering because you brought it on yourself. Nobody's going to give you sympathy. Oh, poor you. You did whatever. But once you've endured that punishment, rise up and go do what is good and right. And then in verse 14, he says, to suffer for the name of Christ is a blessed and happy thing. (laughs) If you are reviled, that's a very strong word. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you're blessed. When was the last time you ever were reviled for the name of Christ? I'm not making that bad. I'm just saying, can you even think of a time that you were reviled? Not just slight, had people slightly annoyed at you. They reviled you. They spit at you and cursed you out and cast you from their presence. They had nothing to do with you. He says, dude, that's awesome. Can you imagine? You come over and you're, again, you're shaken to the core and you sit down with Peter and you're like, this happened this time. You said, man, aren't you blessed? What? He said, you know what you need to do is rejoice in that. Let's pray. Oh, Father, I give thanks that you have granted it to our sister here to suffer in such a way. This is what Jesus said, and Peter knows this. In Matthew 5, 11 through 12, he said, Blessed are you, blessed are you when men cast insults at you, persecute you, and say all kinds of evil against you falsely. Falsely, that's key. On account of me. Command, rejoice and be glad. Why? For your reward, where? In heaven. Is great. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And this was going to be confirmed in Peter's life as well. So one man pointed out that faith realized that the ground for rejoicing does not lie in the sufferings himself, but in the fellowship with Christ. The Spirit is present in those times of suffering in ways that you will never understand until you are in those sufferings. We keep saying we want the strength before it begins So we can endure, and Christ says, no, just enter by faith. I promise you, I will not leave you. We want to see Jesus grab us by our hand before we enter into the valley of the shadow of death, rather than by faith enter the valley of the shadow of death because he's already promised, what? You are with me. Notice then verse 17, the four tells us why we're to be happy in the sufferings of Christ. For it is time for the judgment to begin with the household of God. Peter is assuring the people that God has not forgotten them. Forgotten them. Rather, the fact that they are being judged so strongly is proof that he's working in their midst. What he's doing is cleansing and maturing his people. He's removing that which is inconsistent with his character. And as that is accomplished, he then will move on to the unbeliever. So if you are in this room and you are not a Christian, be afraid. 
Because if he can take a man like Ananias and a woman like Sapphira and just make them go away, then how much more fearsome is the judgment of God upon you who reject him? This sermon is for you, beloved. It's for you who call upon the name of Christ. But don't, do not fool yourself if you are here and you do not know Christ. Apart from Christ, there is no salvation. What are we going to be defined as being? Those who obey the gospel? Yes, we must. The ones who will suffer his ultimate wrath are those who will reject the gospel. So, beloved, God cleansed this early church of sin. But do not think that these two, Ananias and Sapphira, were the only ones in that church sinning that day. The two who died were much less important than the many who were still left alive. Can you imagine how many people were repenting after that? Can you realize how many men and women were walking home after church service saying, I need to seek your forgiveness. I I was going to seek your forgiveness. Everyone's seeking everyone's forgiveness and going to God in prayer because they're like, dude, that was crazy. How many people put away their sin that day? People became very afraid, and yes, that's what the word fear of the Lord means. They became very afraid. They realized that day that they served a good God, but not a safe God. That God always will bring judgment first to his people. But what he's doing here, beloved, and I'll end it here, is this. He is preparing them by making them fear him more than man to suffer well. And so when the suffering hits us, I believe God will first do things in our lives, and I pray that he will, that will cause us to be so much afraid of him and his power and his holiness that whatever comes our way from man will say, what can man do? We serve the living God. Let's pray. Holy Father, I pray that we would then see and believe and understand and repent that even now we might begin to realize that we have been in some way or another playing loose. I pray that you would reveal to us our hearts hearts of covetousness, of bitterness, of resentments, pride, whatever it might be, and turn from those things. That we would understand you call us to be a holy people and that those are not empty words. They're not suggestions. And Father, as we see at times judgment to come upon the church, that we would bear up under it, rejoicing, calling ourselves blessed, knowing that even in the midst of that, you're preparing us to suffer well and end well. Help us in those things, Father. Open our eyes to it, lest teach us to our children. In your Son's holy name, amen. And now may we stand firm against the spiritual powers that press upon us in the strength of the Lord and in his might. May we take up the full armor of God so that we may resist and stand fast in these evil days. May we walk in the peace that comes through the gospel of Jesus Christ, and may we live in the power of the Spirit to the glory of the Father. Amen.